Hey, you're listening to the Achillion Live podcast. I'm Amir, the founder of Achillion, and your host. Each episode, I'll be talking to experts and innovators about cybersecurity, privacy, and startups. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today, we have David Linthicum with me. David was named one of the top nine cloud pioneers in Information Week seven years ago, but started his cloud journey back in 1999 when he envisioned leveraging IT services over the open internet. David was named the number one cloud influencer via a major report by Apollo Research and is typically listed as a top 10 cloud influencer, podcaster, and blogger. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great having me. I appreciate that. You've been in the IT world and the cloud world for a long time. Had your start back when I think I was starting high school. So, hey, 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 come on, man. Yeah, that's true. It's an honor to meet with an industry veteran like you. So yeah, I would love to hear how you got your start in the IT world, but particularly with cloud. Yeah, I mean, normal computer science degree turned developer, C, C plus, and object-oriented development. Wrote a couple of books on that back in the late 80s, early 90s. Parlayed that into an enterprise architecture career focused on integration. I actually wrote the book called Enterprise Application Integration back in the 90s. It started the whole billion-dollar EAI space and parlayed that into a CTO job at Saga Software. I was there for about three years, built a couple of EAI products that was sold and went to Mercator, which was another EAI company. Did about four years there, and that was also sold. Actually, I think it's with IBM now. When I actually was at Saga Software, I wrote a paper called Project Archangel, and that was the ability to leverage integration as a service. So very much what like Boomi and a few of the other cloud providers are doing these days. This is kind of an early idea that if we're going to build these very expensive and complex integration machines, message brokers, translation engines, things like that, why not do it over the open internet? The internet was just appearing at the time, obviously early days of the web. And I thought it was a great idea. And so we wrote this proposal that absolutely nobody cared about. I was trying to get funding for it internally at the company and externally at the company. And so I just decided to turn it into a IEEE paper. It got published and I had a few people out in Silicon Valley interested in it, which was the start of this company called Grand Central, which was started by Halsey Miner, who's the guy who founded CNET. Then everything just took off for there as far as things in the cloud and getting into multi-tenancy and how this thing is going to work, things like that. CTO of Mercator at the time, another EAI company, and then left there after it was sold and became CTO of Grand Central. And so it was the first cloud companies in the space. Salesforce was around at the time. Software as a service was starting to rise, but it was really the first instance of an infrastructure as a service provider. Did that for a while, went off and became CEO of another cloud integration company. That was sold. And then I started my own firm called Blue Mountain Labs, which was in essence working with software companies to multi-tenant enable their stuff. So in other words, if they wanted to be a cloud provider, there are certain things you have to go through in terms of billing and you know usage management and the ability to do multi-tenancy. And this was you know 2005, so no one really knew how to do that. So working for lots of different cloud companies and doing SaaSification of various things, sold that company in 2010, stayed with the acquirer for about three years, and then spun off and helped start uh, Cloud Technology Partners, CTP. And Cloud Technology Partners, great experience. Uh, there for about four years, we sold that to HPE. A lot of companies being sold. I went to a lot of clothes. That's amazing. Yeah, well, that's kind of the way it goes in the tech world. Yeah. Some good, some not so good. This one was good. And then went directly 
to work for Deloitte Consulting after that. And I've been there for about four years, focusing on the cloud area and growing it and where the ball's going to be kicked person, things like that. So 13 books, last few on cloud, maybe 7,000 articles. I do a lot of speaking events. I do a lot of things like this and enjoy talking about technology. Just think it's a blast. I figure out where things are going and investing and making the right bets and things like that. And even though you don't always get it right, just the ability to get out there and compete is something that I just really enjoy doing. That's incredible. You know, people think of Deloitte as a consulting company, accounting firm kind of thing. So what is their interest and what do you work on as far as cloud strategy? Well, there's 7,000 consultants that do cloud there. It really is looking at how you take something to market. In other words, if we're moving into a multi-cloud space, what does that mean in terms of the services we're able to provide? What are some of the things that the clients are going to need? Well, obviously, it's going to be architecture, the ability to do operational management, security that spans clouds, multi-cloud encryption services, all these sorts of things that really aren't around today that we really need to think through. And so I came up with this concept called cloud complexity management and how you deal and manage the complexity of these various systems, the ability to create these cross-cloud ops platforms, security ops, SecOps, GovOps, things like that, and then take it out to clients. Take it out to have the clients just put it on the radar screen for things they need to start thinking about and do so with the ability to get to a value point where we're able to help them take their multi-cloud deployments to the next level and hopefully get everything right the first time and avoid having to fail over and over again until they get cloud right, which many had to do over the last 10 years. It's really thinking as to where everything's going to be going and it's inking in terms of writing their papers and then it's talking into the phone like I am now and other video instruments and clients and all these sorts of things. And obviously over the last 14 months, this is the primary way of we've all been doing it. It's interesting because obviously as cloud has become superfluous and more companies move to the cloud and more applications change. And actually the architecture changes of how the cloud's used. My interest is in security and security often through the history of the internet often was an afterthought. I agree with you. I often said that. I said security was always the last part they put on the car before it goes out the door. That's not the way to do it. Systemic to everything you do. Exactly. And I mm. saw a lecture by Vint Cerf talking about how they weren't thinking about how to secure things. They were making sure that the whole thing arrived, but the packets would get there versus if anyone else was listening. So with all the stuff that's been happening with cloud, as you said, the complexity management, but as security posture management and all of that, and there's software coming out and policies coming out and all of that. What do you think is going on in that space? What are trends going on with security related to the cloud? Yeah, it's really thinking through this adapt and respond paradigm that we're moving through. And we've always thought through it, but the reality is that we're setting up security systems. There were stagnant processes, policies that were set up. If the hack or the attack wasn't in that area, then we were hurt because people were able to work around it. Instead of exploiting these things because they're static in nature, the ability to look at the behavior and how the attack vectors are occurring, who's doing what, where they're coming from, and then respond in such a way as well as react and change as something that security systems need to do. We've always had this notion, and it's been out there with PhD dissertations and things like that for a long time, we're going to bind AI technology to the security and have the security, in essence, get smarter and better you know, at dealing with these changing attack vectors. These hackers get in these breachers or even people who make mistakes within the company a little bit more complex and a little bit more good at what they do. And that's the only way to keep up. And so this is about automating the ability to deal with security, not only 
to react and respond to different security systems, but grow, change, and adapt based on the attack vectors that are changing. And the thing is, if you rely on human beings to sit down and make these adjustments, that's where you're going to get got because we're just not that good. We can have 100 people who are looking at something versus one good automated service that's able to take this stuff, leverage its training data, and create a knowledge base and respond to attacks in different ways. Now, that's what we're looking to move to right now. And if you look at all the security companies that are building out those sorts of things, it's going to be a while before it's a core reality. Leveraging cloud is a step in the right direction because we have better weapons in the cloud to deal with security than we do on-premise now because that's where all the money is being spent. And so everybody's moving into the cloud. And then you're able to take these various tool sets you have in the cloud these days, machine learning, deep learning systems, things like that, and weaponize them for security. And that's the way it's got to happen. The days of trying to build a better mousetrap and then doing the spy versus spy thing are over. And so we have to set up this intelligent system that's able to, in essence, battle on our behalf and will learn and become better over time. How far do you think countermeasures like the ones you're talking about, like software-based or even hardware-based security solutions can go versus the process of doing the security by people? Writing secure code is still really a manual process. Software can help, but I'm a little bit cautious about how far, you know, AI-based tools and stuff like that can go. You know, of course they can help, but do you think they'll ever replace human intervention and human monitoring of that stuff? No, and I was really thinking about more of the SecOps space when I was thinking about the AI stuff. And so it still takes a good developer and a good innovator to, in essence, build code that's going to have a solid security system. But I do think that the intelligent tools and the automated tools to do the security testing and the automated testing and things like that and do the code replacement systems and you know even automate some of the basic security systems that need to be in code that are still going to be something that we need to focus on. Moving forward, like I said, it's systemic to everything. It's just, If we're dealing with a DevOps chain, it's systemic to the way in which we do CICD, the ability to design in certain ways, and the ability to automate this stuff as much as you can. So we're, in essence, taking the routine out of it. And one of the things I never know if I have, say, 100 developers working for me is the degree and the talent in which they're able to secure their code. So if I teach them to deal with use automated tools, so they don't have to think about that and do so in such a way where they're able to leverage the tools that support multiplier versus trying to code everything, that's going to be a better tool for them moving forward. But it's also beholden to me to check their code using automated features and capabilities and things like that, scanning their code for security issues and the ability to do pen testing and black and white box testing in an automated way. And before it's into deployment, and make sure it goes through security testing, has an operational aspect to it in terms of how it's teaching SecOps processes, either humans or the AI system we just talked about, but to manage the code securely, to manage the application securely, to protect the data securely. Pretty much every tech-enabled company is somehow using the cloud, whether they know it or not, you know, if they're using web-based tools and stuff like that, at what point does a company that's deploying some compute into the cloud need to have a well-established policy or security or even just operations around how the cloud is managed? The day they push stuff into the cloud. And I, I really so. do. I, I yeah. don't think, yeah, because if you're not prepared to secure your systems, it is a shared responsibility model with clouds. The thing is, if you're trying to get into the security game in cloud computing and do so in a, in a halfway, you're going to get burned. 
you're going to expose systems. You're going to have buckets that aren't secured. And then you're going to be a short-lived business. So you're going to go from a small business to no business. And by the way, this doesn't mean spending a lot of money. Now, this just means teaching yourself in terms of security policies and practices, how you do it, you know, leveraging the technologies in the cloud. The great thing about the cloud is you can spend $100 a month being a small business and have a very secure system and leverage secure identity access management and encryption and all the things that we need. Or you can spend $10,000 a month or $100,000 a month if you're a large business. It really goes to the scale of your business. So there is no excuse. We're not saying you got to go get a data center like we had 10 years ago and buy different hardware and software and spend millions of dollars. When I was CEO, that was the buy-in. We had to spend at least $2 million to get the data center space, the servers, the security systems, things like that. And now it's all rental. It's all paper use. <laughs> and by the way, it's better than anything we ever had on premise. So there's no excuse yeah. to be a good security person. I, I agree with you. I think a little bit of intention goes a long way, just having that mindset. But that leads me to one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I read your article in InfoWorld, Don't Migrate Your Problems to the Cloud. I thought it was an amazing title, by the way. I think you made some great points. Obviously, at some point you have to fix the problems as they grow and the debt that goes behind those things. And migrating to the cloud could make things worse if you have problems that aren't dealt with. You mentioned a little bit about security. How does security relate to some of the stuff that goes into problems that have to be fixed before you migrate to the cloud? Yeah, we just went to the fact that people aren't creating systems that are secure into themselves. They have design patterns they're leveraging that aren't secure. And these things need to be fixed in terms of remediating the application so they have a more secure state now before we're able to move into the cloud. And so if we're going to leverage identity access management, for example, in the cloud, and we don't do so with the existing on-premise systems, right. then we need to figure out how to transform the system as it goes from point A to point B and improve it in the cloud. The thing is, if we migrate an unprotected, poorly designed system that has systemic security issues to the cloud, guess what? It has the same problems in the cloud. It, nothing's going to be fixed. So you have to figure out how all these things hook and play well together in moving stuff forward. So it just comes as the best practice. Or by the way, don't move it. We'll remediate yeah. it where it is in place, run it for a while, say give it a year of traction, and then eventually make the leap to the cloud as the platform analogs start to exist and the path of least resistance starts popping up. But the notion that we're going to take these poorly designed systems and move into the cloud and they're somehow going to be better and more secure is just a fantasy. In fact, it may be less secure in the cloud than it was on-premise. Yeah, probably. So, so yeah, in another article I read in your Deloitte Insights blog, The Edge of Cloud, you talked about some of the issues with syncing security and governance with edge devices. You said the tools aren't there, I think, is one of the things you said in that. What kind of stuff is missing and what are some of the opportunities that might be out there for companies to solve? The funny thing about edge computing is it's a computing system on the edge. And so it could be in someone's mailbox or it could be, you know, exactly. on, a, on a telephone pole. And so guess what? People can unbolt it from those things and, and walk away with it. Your physical security out there is obviously going to be a challenge moving forward. But the big thing that I was really thinking about was the configuration of these systems, the ability to kind of update them with all the patches and fixes they need to remain secure. So if these things are an extension into itself, and they're edge devices because they're in essence, let's say a digital clone of something I have running in the cloud, and I may have a thousand of them. Let's say things are automating a farm, for example. And that's what I know pretty well, because those are edge devices. And they're full-blown computing systems, and they store data, maybe not that valuable data, you know, egg production and things like that. 
But the reality is, if I'm not able to manage and monitor them and control them and reach them and maintain them and even touch them, then they're going to have some security issues moving forward. If Afra mentioned, people are going to run off with these devices. And so we have to think, number one, about what we store on them. And even if we don't think much about what we store on them, you got to remember that these things have access to the backend cloud data. So they have the keys to the kingdom. So they enter themselves become an attack vector. So if they're taken over and say this is something that's a Raspberry Pi that's not very well secured and it has access direct to an IP tunnel that goes directly to the backend cloud system, you're in trouble. And even though they didn't hack the cloud, they hacked, in this case, the edge device. The security lacking in those devices will still get them into the areas that they shouldn't be getting into. We haven't really thought through a lot of this stuff within edge computing. Very much like the event surf example you said, we just were glad it worked and we're secure it later. I think people are thinking around edge computing with the same way. And it panics me because IoT was going to be an attack vector. It still is an attack vector. Here's edge computing, which integrated with IoT and separate devices, but we're dealing with full-blown computers versus just sensor data. Sensors are very limited in what they're able to do. And if I hack a sensor, I can't do a lot with that. But if I hack into a full-blown computer with storage and processing and network connectivity into these back-end systems, which really what edge computings are, that by definition, they're all connected to the back-end data. Now, I can do some damage pretty quick, bring down jet airplanes and things like that. And that's a little, <laughs> a little concerning. Yes. It, is, it is horrifying. Definitely. One of the thoughts that goes behind, you have all this rich data that you can collect and do so many wonderful things with and useful things. Balancing that with the security concern of the principles behind like not collecting excessive data that may not absolutely be necessary, that could be posed as a risk later with edge devices and cloud. How does that change that balancing act of, I can collect your location all day long, but maybe I don't need to for this application to work. This is the minimum amount of data I need to collect to do the job. How do you balance that with like edge devices and cloud computing? How do you decide what's the right amount of data to collect if you know you don't have certain assurances on security? Yeah, and this is a tiering problem. I've been writing and speaking about a ton because we have to figure out what's going to exist on these edge devices and what should exist on the backend cloud. And also we have to tier security on these systems as well. We're going to protect our edge devices a bit differently because there's limited security capabilities on those things because they're much lower power devices in terms of how we deal with encryption and things like that. Right. It really is a matter of figuring out how you're going to scheme the consumption of information to the edge device and what you're going to store on the edge device. My guidance to people who are leveraging edge computing now is don't store anything on the edge device that you're not worried about getting hacked and people running away with. So again, egg production data, they can grab one of the Raspberry Pis off the, the chicken coop. They're not going to kill the farm. However, if it goes back into an FDA database that happens to produce a farm future information that allows you to make trillions of dollars in a very short period of time through insider trading, that's obviously different protected data. And what we need to do is tier the data in certain ways. And sometimes there's just going to be two tiers, the edge tier and the back tier in the system. That's typically the way it's going to be. The security systems are, should be completely different. And they should be decoupled, by the way. In other words, when you go through a gateway from the edge device into the backend systems, there should be no way for you to tunnel into those systems. And the key management and the certifications and the validation authentication is occurring from the cloud-based side. So you have to do tricks like that if you're going to get into this world. But 
we just get so excited about this technology and people yeah. say, well, these edge devices are great because there's no latency and it sits next to the factory float robot. It sits in our cars and things like that. And we're able to react and respond directly to the data and collecting the data seems like a foregone conclusion and storage is basically free. But if you're not dealing with security, you're going to end up in trouble quick. Hacking automobiles and other mobile devices is a real thing. And yeah. the reason is because the exposure of these systems, the underpoweredness of these systems, leaves them vulnerable. Versus these back-end systems, we can pretty much close them down with pretty sophisticated security systems, not so much on the edge-based devices now. now. Switch caps for a moment to being a consumer. If you've got an IoT device, an exercise bike, a watch, a mailbox you know, on the edge, do you feel like the company has any responsibility to at least tell you what's being stored where or how. We kind of get some of that information, you know, especially with the latest iOS updates about right now your location is being used or whatever. But do you think there's like a higher level than that that we're owed as consumers or do you think that's just like people being paranoid? I, I think there should be very open and honest privacy statements about how your data is being leveraged. Certainly, we all wear these things. Okay, this thing stores my heart rate and exercise patterns that you can get to my weight, you can get to you know lots of information I'd rather not get out. Well, where is that stuff being stored? Well, the reality is being stored in the cloud on the back end system, but they should tell me how it's being stored, how it's being secured, you know, if it's being shared, if it's being shared by whom, is it anonymized when it's being shared? All these sorts of things, because the reality is if we don't release our data, we're not gonna find wonderful things that we're gonna be able right. to do with it. If Information and Fitbit 20.0 or whatever is gathering everything from heart rate, monitor, heart rate to blood saturation to blood pressure and all that stuff. And I lead up to getting a stroke. And by the way, it has a year's worth of information in terms of my vitals and how they behaved up until I got this unexpected stroke. If that goes to a back-end research database, and then I'm able to prevent somebody from getting another stroke because it's able to find the repeating pattern. Maybe you find the repeating pattern in me and a thousand other people. And you are having the same sort of symptoms, basically leading up to a potential stroke and knows that you have a you know 70% chance of having a stroke. Then that's a great thing. Then we just went ahead and solved the problem and saved a life by exposing data that we wouldn't ordinarily have access to. Right. So that's where privacy needs to be balanced with the needs of the information. But I'm also, I believe that everybody should opt in to having the information produced. And there's, I don't mind any information put into a big health database. And for whatever reason, religious reasons, privacy reasons, things like that, sure. I should be able to opt out of it. But I think what's happening now is people just do what they want willy-nilly with the backend information. you got to remember the laws totally. of the United States stop at the border so if it's being transmitted overseas, I'm subject to their laws or lack of laws. And so we have to keep that in mind. It's probably good to be healthily paranoid. I mean, I just kind of believe in what wonderful things we can do with this information. I just think we have to be very careful, very open and honest in terms of how we're describing how people's privacy is being lost. I agree with you. I mean, I have tons of celebrity clients and high profile clients in my security business. And they often ask questions like, well, should I not use this X very popular commonly used app or IOT device because I'm higher risk? And I'm like, no, that's not necessarily a problem. You're fine sharing the data. And just as you said, like there's very good reasons to do it. So I think for me, it's more about just knowing what they were collecting. It's scary to hear after something bad happens 
And then it's, oh, they were also collecting X data that you didn't even know was happening. And that's becoming very well regulated through iOS and Android because they're you know controlling the OS APIs and all of that. But on an IoT device, you don't know. There's no assurance on any part. You don't know what's being collected at all. I think it's an interesting concept. I mean, you know, just going with the consumer side of it, I'm curious to hear your point of view. If you're an experienced technologist who has a lot of experience with security and governance, if a friend or family member, an individual, not a business, asks you off the top of your head, like, what's the couple of things that you absolutely must do to protect yourself? What's the stuff that comes to mind for digital security and privacy? Number one, don't accept every device into your life and understand what devices you are accepting into your life, and then understanding how they're dealing with privacy and security in each one of those devices. Willy-nilly, drag in Alexa devices and Google and all these sorts of things and Nest thermostats, and there's probably 40 of these things in a typical average home. All those things become a security and privacy concern unto itself. And by the way, they're not regulated because they're connected directly to the internet. They don't have a platform like iOS and Android, you just mentioned, that are controlling access to various systems that shouldn't be allowed to happen. If you have too many of those things and you can't keep track of them, then you can count on your privacy falling by the wayside. People are okay with that, by the way. I talk to people all the time. They just assume they're being monitored. And so they don't really care what devices and drag into their life. I'm a little different if you're going to install a device or leverage a device, you know, such as the Fitbit. You figure out what they're doing with the data, what they're monitoring with the data, and also think about what happens if they're breached. Will the data hurt me? That gets out there in the cloud. It's a balancing act. But the thing is adapting everything and never meeting a device you don't like, which we seem to be moving <laughs> through these days, or even not yeah. getting suspicious where they give you a device for free and they go, wonder where the hell they're monetizing that. So we have to balance the convenience of having these devices around and the, the wonderfulness of these devices with the fact that they can be used for bad as well as good. Yeah, I totally agree. My last question I wanted to ask you, you obviously have a lot of thought leadership out there about cloud and all parts of it, which seem to be really critical for like large established organizations. You mentioned a little bit about it before. If you're a startup, if you're just starting out, you're maybe one or two developers, you're a small company building your first web-based application, choosing between which cloud provider, what services, what type of architecture are you going to have? Is it going to be monolithic or using a database service? If you're using you know, S3 buckets, whatever it is, how should you think about the long-term ramifications of the stuff you're doing? Should you think about them at all? You've been an entrepreneur, so you've seen stuff right at the beginning. When is the right time to start thinking about these and putting the practices in place? As soon as you start, I'm actually more concerned about the culture you know, than I am about the technology these days, because I can change the technology so easily. Or I couldn't 15 years ago when I was a CEO, because we're buying stuff at the sunk cost. We're going to leverage, you know, lamp stacks, things like that, for as long as we're going to be able to amortize them. We can, I can't start bringing in Microsoft stuff and mainframes and things like that. I just can't afford it. Where if you're in a cloud world, which we are today, switching from platform to platform, and not considering the coding ramifications and the platform localization stuff. It's fairly simple. I don't want to do it. It's, it's problematic. It's going to make me spend more money, but it doesn't bother me. In fact, I see enterprises do it all the time and small companies do it all the time. And where it wasn't possible 10 years ago, it's completely possible now. And it, switching costs are certainly intra-cloud when you're moving stuff within the same cloud. Pretty easy to consume. My concern 
would be maintaining the innovation and experimenting culture within the company, because that's where I'm going to make my money. It's not necessarily on adhering to a particular standard of technology that's going to save us money over time, but it's finding the best technology that people are able to leverage as a force multiplier to build whatever we're building. That's far more important to me now if I was starting a company than the technology, because the technology is cheap. I can leverage it on demand. I can switch it out if I need it to a certain degree. There's obviously issues in moving with that, and we have to deal with security and governance and all those sorts of things. But I would get them thinking in terms of how are you going to consume technology in such a way? We're able to change the technology. We're able to put volatility into a domain, and we're able to leverage common security, common governance, common management and monitoring capabilities moving forward. And thinking about this commonality is probably more important than thinking about picking particular pieces of technology like DevOps and all these things that are typically built into these development firms these days. It's a little bit of a different equation. And so if I was consulting a small company, I would say the technology is going to be cheap. Don't do something stupid. Think about commonalities of service. Think about collaboration between your teammates. Try not to limit them to a certain stack or a certain way of doing technology. This should be something where you're exploring, you're trying, you're failing fast, and you're getting to an ultimate solution. Because once you get to be a 50-person company, a 100-person company, those sorts of things seem to move their way out of the culture. And people kind of get down into their everyday routine of doing something and don't necessarily want to rock the boat or shake things up. Where if you're able to maintain that culture and scale that culture, that kind of the path of success, the big cultures that are around today the large trillion dollar cap companies mm-hmm. that are able to maintain this experimental culture, probably Apple and Amazon would be a good instances of that, are going to be way more successful than companies that focus on standardizing everything. So your ability to be a disruptor and not getting disrupted should start in the early culture of the company, considering that you're either going to scale up to adding a person a week for the next couple of years, or you're not going to get funded. So the growth is going to be built into the model. So how are you going to grow? What should you care about when you grow? And it shouldn't be about everybody getting down to the same platform standards, same coding standards, and things like that. Commonality of security, commonality of management and monitoring, certainly important, but far less important than culture. I totally agree with you. Culture is definitely more important since you've been a part of so many exits and all of that. How important do you think cloud posture management and process and setup is for like an exit as far as like diligence goes. Are companies looking at what kind of architecture and DevOps and posture you have when you're selling your company now with all the benefits and risks that go along with cloud? Yeah, every transaction I've been through, the due diligence has always been breaking everything down to the nth degree. That was either whether it's on-premise or in the cloud, it doesn't matter. They're going to have the auditors show up and ask the questions in terms of how your DevOps tool chain works, how you deal with code quality. And you have to answer those questions before you sell the company. It certainly is a detailed conversation that you have. And it's even getting more detailed because they're leveraging experts who are skilled in a particular area. So you're not getting a DevOps question from some board of directors. That's never going to happen these days. Yeah. And they're also leveraging auditing tools to scan your code and look for things. And I've seen deals go south because people may have put codes that may be open source that wasn't documented correctly or something like that, where they get a little nervous. 
And so as you build your business, it's important that you kind of maintain those disciplines to make sure everything is going to be automatically tracked. And so when they come along and buy your company, you're not sweating those audits out. It's just going to get worse because people are careful. And obviously, we're paying a lot of money for companies these days. We've got 10-person companies that are going for half a billion dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And all the benefits and risks that go along with that. If you're an early stage person in your career, developer, IT person, what do you think is the best way to learn? What are the books that you need to read or courses you need to watch? Any recommendations about that? Yeah, I, I kind of into people not following other people's thinking and kind of develop your own thinking unto itself. I would take some classes on basic accounting systems and how payroll works and things like that to get the basic business stuff down. But as far as all these mandatory books everybody loves to read, I don't think they help everybody in the same way. I'd rather somebody develop their own methodology, their own thinking in terms of how they take things to the next level. You start leveraging other people's ideas. I think that's where you go wrong. You know, say the mistakes I made is, you know, I took business classes. I took management and things like that. And it completely wasn't like that. I had to find my own management leadership style that worked for me and worked for the people who work for me. And if you get out there and try to implement other people's ideas, in this case, I'm 58. So we learned about the traditional management practices, which are kind of draconian in nature. It doesn't work and wouldn't work now. It wouldn't scale. And the reality is people want to be trusted and they want to be taken care of and they want to be given interesting things to do. They want to be compensated fairly and treated appropriately. And that's something that I don't think you find in books that much. If you do, they don't figure out how to balance it with the fact that you have to run a business and in many instances make decisions that people don't like. And that's a tough thing to do too. And so the leader today, the person who runs a business successfully, the patterns that I see are completely different than what I saw 20 years ago. Those people are retired, they're gone. I think they were successful within the cultures they were building in the market and they can certainly get away within the market they are today. Today, it's a completely different game. And I think that if you read other people's ideas, with a few exceptions, I'd rather you develop your own management style, your leadership style, even though you will have to understand the basics in terms of counting works and how to write a check and the fact you need money. Right. And stuff like that. That's an important thing. <laughs> That's true. David, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. You can connect with David on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll put up the links to both of his Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much. You got it, man.